0: Good morning. I'm not Pastor John. (laughs) He does. Uh, First, let me thank you for not getting up and walking out. (laughs) Secondly, yes, John did have a message he wanted me to tell you. First, you need to understand, he's just taking a very short break this week. So he's off this week. Very rare that he's not here in the pulpit. Um, But he wanted me to give you a message, trying to remember what the message was. I think it was Happy New Year. I think he wanted me to say, I know what it was. He wanted me to tell each and every one of you, have a nice day. What do you think he wanted me to tell you? Yeah, Isn't that great? Let me tell you about that. We were at breakfast. Uh, I had breakfast with John last Wednesday so he could help me prepare for today. And we had talked about a lot of stuff at breakfast time and he was smiling. And in fact, a, a young man at another table came over to talked to John because he'd heard John preach before. And so John was just in the sweetest, greatest mood, smiling and laughing and talking. And then at the end of the breakfast, he said, Dave, please tell everybody how much I love them. And when he said that, his joy went up a notch. (laughs) His eyes sparkled, his smile just beamed. So when he tells us that he loves us from the bottom of his heart, he really means it. And we love him too. I want to tell you something that I mean from the bottom of my heart. You guys look really good. (laughs) I really love looking at you. You're my family. This is where my family worships. And today, while I'm speaking, I'll make eye contact with you because that's what speakers need to do to make eye contact. But it's selfish. I just really like looking at you. So when you see me look at you, I'm really enjoying it. (laughs) My name is Dave Briggs and um, I wanted to tell you a story. I did not speak, I did not say this on Saturday night. And I just, for the first time, talked about it at the first service because I wasn't going to share this because it's kind of personal. But my mother <laughs> told me I should, and Pastor Dan said that I should, so I take their authority and I want to share something with you. Um, I gave my life to Christ when I was in the fourth grade. That was in April of 1964. I was 10 years old. And at that time, I really felt the calling of God on my life. I, I, even as a 10-year-old boy, I, I just knew, I could picture, he wanted me to grow up to be a pastor. So I thought, had that thought all the way through school, through high school, through college. I went to Biola to study for ministry. But the Lord had another plan for me, and I ended up in media, which I enjoy. But it's, so now I just serve as a lay person. I didn't think I would ever have this amazing privilege to teach the word of God on a Sunday morning service. And that was okay. I've trusted God with my life. His will, I want his will. But today, just to let you know, today right now is the answer to a 48-year-old prayer. In fact, I was uh, sitting in the Carl's Jr. parking lot last week. I, my wife and I missed last week because we had to go up to Big Bear for a Christmas party. We stayed overnight. And coming down the mountain on Sunday, I got a. Te- we pulled into Carl's Jr. to get a soft drink. Joni went in to get the drink, and I was in the parking lot, and my phone chimed. Oh, hey, look! I got a, I got a text message from Pastor John. How nice! And I'm reading it, and it says, "Dave, really miss you at church this week. Love you. All oh, this nice." And then I came to the next sentence, and I'm quite certain my heart stopped beating. <laughs> I don't think I breathed for a while. I read it, and then I read it again to see if I read what I read, then I read it again and again, and then when my wife came back to the car, I said, read this text and tell me what it says. (laughs) What it said was, Dave, I want you to preach for me this week, this, you know, 29th and 30th, if you can. I thought it was interesting that John put, if you can, at the end of it. I think he meant if I was available, but I took it to mean, well, if I can. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But... When I saw those words there in the parking lot, it was an answer to a 48-year-old prayer. And I, you know, so I'm just sharing that with you. This is, um, yeah, God is amazing. Yes. Yeah. yeah. God is amazing. So at this church, just like with the music we heard, we pray together, we worship together, and we study together, and we always ask the Holy Spirit to guide us. So you please join me in prayer? Father, thank you for every person here today that has come to worship you, to love you, to to serve you. We thank you, Lord, for anyone visiting today. And we just ask your blessing on Pastor John. We love him so. We are so grateful that he's getting this time to take a short break. We pray your, just bless him with his time with his family. Renew his strength so he can come back refreshed for the new year. And now, Father, as we uh, prepare to study your word, we just ask, dear, dear Father, may it accomplish everything that you want it to accomplish in each one of our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, here we are. 2012. Just about done. And I don't know if you do this, but I start to kind of evaluate the year. Do you look back past the past 12 months and try to figure out what kind of year has this been? Because 2013 is just around the corner. And by the way, where I work, I work with a lot of secular people who are very superstitious. And 2013 has them really freaked out. (laughs) I've had some wonderful, wonderful times in 2012. So many incredible blessings. I hope you have too. And of course, in 2012, I also lost some people that I cared very much about. They passed away. I'm sure many of you did too. At our wonderful Christmas Eve candlelight ceremony, Pastor John talked about that awful tragedy in Connecticut that's sort of closing our year, right? And uh, it's got the whole country shaken. But what I've noticed is the closer we get to New Year's Eve, there's a little bit of an optimism, a hopefulness coming in the country. It's like when that ball drops in Times Square, we get to start over, <laughs> You're right? Out with the old, in with the new, out with the bad, in with the good, just because that ball dropped. Thousands of people are going to go to New York City. They're going to go to Paris, London. They're going to go all over the world. They are going to put up with horrible weather, horrible crowds and traffic, just so they can be there for that moment to be a witness to when 2012 passes into history (coughs) and 2013 is born. They're gonna wear really funny-looking hats. They're gonna blow horns. They're gonna shout Happy New Year, and they're gonna kiss each other at midnight, and they're going to hope that somehow the country, the world, will, will get it right In 2013. Some of us probably make New Year's resolutions where we pledge how we're going to improve ourselves this coming year. I went to the USA.gov website because I want to read you the top ten New Year's resolutions. Number one, drink less alcohol. I imagine they came up with that right after New Year's Eve. (laughs) Eat healthy food, get a better education, get a better job, get fit, Lose weight, quit smoking, save money, take a trip, and volunteer to help others. But as the saying goes, a New Year's resolution goes in one year and out the other. (laughs) Meaning we don't follow through. On New Year's Eve, we also sing a song. I'm not going to sing it for you, but I'll quote you the words. You'll know this. Should old acquaintance be forgot and never brought to mind, should old acquaintance be forgot and old lang syne. Meaning, this is a song about remembering the people that are special to us. So Year's is a time that we remember some things while we try to forget other things. And did you know that there's something that God promises to forget? If you'll turn in your Bibles, there it is, to um, Hebrews 8:12. We're gonna look at a few verses today. I'm gonna try not to go too fast, but if I do, it's okay. Just maybe jot them down and look at them later. You're gonna have a lot of time to find Hebrews 8.12 because uh, I have a story I wanna tell you. (laughs) I just started reading a book by Billy Graham. It's called Nearing Home. And in the book, he tells this story. He tells a story about a senior citizen who was pulled over by a police officer. And when the police officer walks up to the window, he asks the elder citizen, why were you exceeding the speed limit? And the gray-haired driver says, well, young man, I was speeding to get to where I wanna go before I forget where I'm going. (laughs) Now, there's been a term that has become pretty popular lately to express these kind of memory glitches. It's called having a senior moment. You've heard that phrase, right? People will say, you know, I went into the garage to get something. and Then I got there. Couldn't remember what I came in here for. I guess I'm having a senior moment. Or they'll call you up. Hey, Dave, I have a question for you. But now that I have you on the phone, I can't remember what the question was. Sorry, I'm having a senior moment. You know what? I don't think this term, senior moment, is fair. I'll tell you why. I'm getting closer and closer to senior citizenship myself. And yeah, I am forgetting a few things a little more often than I used to, but that's only because I have so much more to remember. After Saturday night service, uh, a man came up to me and said, I never have senior moments. I have whiteouts. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was better. <clears throat> the fact is, young or old, we all have occasional, occasional little lapses of memory. I'm sure this has happened to you. Let me ask. You've, you've been, you're in the grocery store or somewhere, and you see somebody coming that you know, and they see you, and they're coming to see you, and you can't remember their name. And they walk right up and go, Dave, hi, how are you? Good to see you. And I think, rats. He knows my name. I wish I could remember his name, but, I, but out loud I say, Oh, I'm good, good. How are you? And, and while he's talking to me, I'm listening, but I'm also trying memory tricks to see if I can come up with his name. And I'll start with the alphabet, right? A, Albert, Alfred. B, Bartholomew, Brad, Bill. And, and I go through the alphabet as quickly as I can to see if I can come up with the letter. I skip Q. X and Z, I don't know any Xaviers and Quincy's. And, so I, I, and if I get to the end of the alphabet and I don't have the name yet, I try location association. Well, do I know them from church? No, work. Yorba Linda basketball, what? Now, sometimes, in the midst of that, the clouds part, and the name pops into my head just in the nick of time. In fact, that's it, Nick. <laughs> good to see you. Thank you for saying hi. But there are other times nothing. No matter what I do, I can't come up with it. My mind is a total blank. And that's the title of this message, a total blank. And the next time you have a total blank, instead of being embarrassed, think of it as a blessing. Think of of it as a tiny, tiny example of what God's memory is like when he forgives our sins. We're going to look at three aspects of God's forgetfulness. We're going to look at the promise, the price, and the purpose. Promise, price, and purpose of God's forgetfulness. Let's start with the promise. It's clearly stated in Hebrews 8.12. I'm sure you've found it by now. You've probably read the entire book by now. The writer here is quoting Jeremiah 31.34. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. What a statement. Wouldn't that make a great headline for New Year's Day? (laughs) I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. God is promising to forgive and forget. And this is something that's hard maybe for us to understand because for humans, I don't know that we can do this. Have you ever maybe hurt someone and you've gone to them to ask for forgiveness? Or maybe somebody's come to you and said, will you please forgive me for what I said or what I did? And you did forgive them out of the kindness of your heart. You did. But you really can't ever forget what they said or what they did that hurt you. That's because human beings, we have lousy erasers. But God promises to forgive and forget. This isn't good news, this is great news. In fact, it's extraordinary. Please turn to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 40, 12 to 14, to see why this is so amazing. In this passage we're turning to, Isaiah is going to use what is called an anthropomorphism. That's a big word, that's a spelling bee kind of word anthropomorphism. It means that Isaiah is going to describe God in human terms so we can picture him a little better in our minds. Now some people believe that when God created the world a long time ago, for some reason either he lost interest in us or he got disgusted with us and just left us alone and he's gone off to do other things and we're on our own out here. Some people believe that when God created the world, things happened that he couldn't predict or control, so now we're sort of spinning on our own, and God's there, but a little bit like a helpless observer. But this is not what the Bible teaches at all. The Bible teaches that God is aware of and in control of everything down to the tiniest detail. Let's read it. Isaiah forty twelve: Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or marked off the heavens by the span? Let me pause here and say, this is what Isaiah's point is. If you want to know how mighty God is, Just look at his hands, figuratively speaking. I love basketball, and I'm gonna mention a name, and you've probably never heard of him before, and that's okay. You'd have to be a real hardcore basketball fan to remember him, and that's fine. He played for the Lakers in 1970 and 71. His name was John Q. Trapp, John Quincy Trapp. He also had a brother that played. He was a 6'7 forward. He didn't score a lot of points, but here's why I will never forget him. He had the biggest hands in the NBA, biggest hands I'd ever seen. He was the only player I ever saw who could grip a basketball with one hand and hold it like a grapefruit. And it was fun to watch him play because they'd pass him the ball, he'd catch it and he'd go, boom, like he's throwing it. The defender would go, look where it went. But he still had it because he could do that and he could bring it back. And then he could go to the basket and he could score. It was amazing. Well, if if John Q. Trap was here now and he put his big hand out there and cupped it, we might get a quarter of a cup, maybe a half a cup of water in there maybe before it spilled out. If I put my scrawny little puny hand next to his, I'd get maybe a tablespoon or two. But look what God can do. God can measure the waters of the earth in his hand, meaning God can hold the Atlantic Ocean, the Pacific, and all the other bodies of water that cover our planet in one hand. And look, he can mark off the heavens by the span, meaning the span of his other hand can mark or measure or hold the entire universe with his other hand. All the oceans and the entire universe in his hands, meaning God is incomplete. Control. Let's finish the verse. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? The Lord has calculated the dust of the earth by the measure. He knows how many grains of dust are on the planet. And he knows how much Mount Everest and the hills of Yorba Linda weigh. Isaiah's point, God is all-knowing. Not only is he all-powerful, but he's all-knowing. Nothing escapes his attention. Now, for me, this is how I track things. I can barely keep track of my car keys. And if I put my glasses down, I swear they go into some parallel dimension or aliens come from outer space and snatch my glasses and take them up to the mothership to study because I know I left them right here and they're not there anymore. And then I find them in another room where I know I was never in that other room. That's how I track things. But God... He tracks everything down to the smallest detail, including the dust of the earth. I have a cockatoo at home. Her name is Pearl. We call her Pearly Gates. And cockatoos, if you don't know, produce a very fine feather dust, a powder. It's like if you have a cockatoo, all the time they're producing what looks like baking soda dandruff. It's always powdery. And every day she produces lots of this stuff. And you go into her cage, there's a thin layer of it on the cage or or, or on the furniture. Now, I've never stopped to, count how many little grains of dust she produces in a day, but it's a lot. If you don't believe me, (laughs) you ask my wife, it's a lot. (laughs) Now, if I were to guess, I'd say, okay, let's say the pearl produces 100,000 particles of dust a day. That's just one cockatoo. What about all the cockatoos in the world? Put on top of that, all the other (laughs) dust-making things in the world, including all the dust that's already here from years and centuries. That's a whole lot of dust. And what do you do in a sandstorm? Do you lose count and start over? I think that number is absolutely impossible to calculate. If you calculated all the dust in every home, not our home, not uh, not ours, (laughs) but every other home, um, city, state, continent, on the planet, no one could calculate that number, but God knows that number. The point is this. Well, let let me read you one more. Let me finish 13 and 14. Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord or as his counselor has informed him? With whom did he consult and who gave him understanding? And who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding? God's mind knows no limits. There's nothing he doesn't know. There's nothing he needs to be explained. There's nothing he doesn't understand. And this is what's amazing. God, out of the depths, of his unlimited mind, makes a choice. He chooses to forgive and forget our sins. It's not that he can't track our sins because they are too many. No, he can count all the dust we just talked about. He chooses to forgive and forget. He chooses to remember our sins no more. This is what we should cheer about on New Year's, isn't it? You know, when that ball drops in Times Square, it celebrates the tick of a clock. But God forgives us for all time. In John, First John 1, to 8-10, a verse we turn to often with Pastor John. It says, If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. God forgives us, but we all continue to sin. So what do we do with that? We must confess it. Because unconfessed sin spoils our fellowship, spoils our relationship with God. It's just like if you, if you are angry at your spouse or your friend. That anger drives a wedge. That anger puts in a wall. That anger creates tension. But when you talk about it and then you apologize, that relationship is restored, even strengthened. When the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, we must confess it Confess it immediately. And then God is faithful and he is righteous to forgive us every time. Make us spotless in his eyes. Now, confession is never vague. When the Bible talks about confessing our sins, it's talking about something very, very specific. It doesn't mean that we issue a generic statement. Something like, God, um, if I have done something wrong today, or this week, or this month, or this year, please forgive me. That's not confessing. That's, that's a blanket apology. That's just sort of like a press release. That, that, that isn't what we're talking about. Confession is specific. Here's exactly what I did wrong, Lord. Here's my attitude that's wrong. Here's my thought that was wrong. Here's my action that was wrong. Please forgive me. And confession is honest. Can't blame somebody else. Can't blame my circumstances. Oh, I was tired. Oh, but he said this to me first. I just have to tell God exactly what it is and be honest and not try to sugarcoat it. Don't try to spin it. Just tell it like it is. Uh, Charles Spurgeon wrote this. It's beautiful. He said, lay bare your soul. Let God see it as it is and then he will be faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Lay bare your soul, fillet it, just open it up. Uh, David Guzik, in his commentary, wrote, No man was ever kept out of God's kingdom for his confessed badness, but many have been kept out for their supposed goodness. Read that again, it's good. I heard a lot of people, hmm, that's what I said when I read it too. No man is ever kept out of God's kingdom for his confessed badness, but many are kept out for their supposed goodness. Let's turn to Psalm 103. I love the book of Psalms. You, whatever you're feeling, whatever you're thinking, there's a psalm for that. And this passage tells us and gives us a very vivid picture of what God's forgiveness looks like. Where does our sin go when he removes it from us? Psalm 103, 10. as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. All I have to say to that is praise God. If he gave us what we deserve, we would be toast, done, no hope, lost. We need mercy, and God gives us mercy, lots of it. Look, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. This word fear means to revere, to honor him as Lord, God promises to pour out his love on those who honor him. Now, how much love does God have? How does he measure it? Half a tank? A ton? As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. How high are the heavens? How high is the universe above the earth? I didn't know either, so I went to the NASA website to look it up. Here's what the NASA website says officially. Quoting NASA, No one knows if the universe is infinitely large or even if ours is the only universe that exists. The National Aeronautics and Space Administration says nobody can measure the sky, nobody can measure the distance that the heavens are above the earth because it's just too big. It's exactly what Psalm 103 says. We can't measure God's love for us. So where does our sin go? Where does God send it when he removes it from us? Well, he removes it as far as the east is from the west. And how far is that? If you remember high school geometry, although I think now they probably teach this in first grade, if you send a straight line heading east, if this is east, and you send another straight line going west, they will never meet. So when God forgives our sin, he will never see it again. That's just amazing. Psalm 103 also shows us how silly it is to try to hide our sins from God. He knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. He is the manufacturer. He's got the blueprints. He knows how we, we are wired. He knows we are frail. He knows we are sinful. He knows we are weak. J. Vernon McGee said, God remembers that we are dust. We forget it. And when dust gets stuck on itself, it becomes mud. <laughs> this is the picture of a man. <clears throat> now, my brother-in-law tells the story that when he was a little boy, before my wife was born, he was the only boy, child in the house and his mom had just finished painting the kitchen. So... Tom took his favorite crayon and wanted to go right on the wall. So he wrote big O-T-O-M. Very proud of his work. His mom wasn't so proud. When she came in and found the artist's signature on her wall, she found her little boy and said, remember, he's the only child in the house, Tom, did you write your name on my freshly painted wall? And what do you think Tom said? (laughs) It wasn't me, Mom. No, I wouldn't do that. Guess what? Tom did not fool his mother. And we don't fool God. He already knows everything. All we prove when we try to sneak something past God, all we're proving is how little we understand who God Almighty is. God promises to remember our sins no more, but at what price? Does God just pretend? Not to look? I won't watch? Or does God forgive us out of the goodness of his heart? Or does God's forgiveness cost something? Of course, we know that God's forgiveness comes at a very, very steep price. But not for us, for him. There's a hymn, My Sins, My Sins, My Savior. Again, I will, I'll spare you. I won't sing it, but let me read you the second verse. My sins, My Sins, My Savior. How sad on thee they fall. Seen through thy gentle patience, I tenfold feel them all. I know they are forgiven, but still their pain to me is all the grief and anguish they laid, my Lord, on thee. Jesus paid for our sins with his life. God does not look the other way when we sin. He looks right at us. But then he sees the blood of Jesus covering us, and that's why he can forgive us not because we're cute and cuddly, but because of Christ. First Peter 2:24. <coughs> Peter quotes uh, Isaiah 53, 5, and he says, He himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds, you were healed. Jesus died in our, pl- in our place. Jesus paid the price we were supposed to pay. Oswald Chambers was a Scottish preacher of the, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and this is what he wrote. He said, It is shallow nonsense to say that God forgives us because he is love. Once we have been convicted of sin, we will never say this again. The love of God means Calvary and nothing less. The love of God is spelled out on the cross and nowhere else. The only basis for which God can forgive me is the cross of Christ. It is there, that his conscience is satisfied. If Jesus hadn't died for our sins, we would be left holding the tab. We would have to pay. And what would the price be? Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay, let's be honest. Sin is inviting. Sin is fun. But sin has a very, very steep price tag. The cost of sin is death. Either we pay with our lives or we accept Christ's death in our place. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God wants to give us eternal life. It is free to us only because Christ paid our debt in full. Uh, Joni and I celebrated our 37th wedding anniversary this past year. (coughs) And we went to dinner. We had a really nice dinner. Just the two of us. (laughs) It's kind of unusual just to be together. And at the end of the meal, the manager walked up, and he had our bill in his hand. He walked up to our table, and my wife said, "Uh Uh-oh, here comes the bad news. (laughs) And he smiled. And he said, Actually, I have really good news. I just got off the phone with your son-in-law and daughter, and they want to pay for your meal. You're paid in full. We were so surprised. What a wonderful gift. What a wonderful surprise. And it made me think this. Someday, when this life is coming to a close, death is going to walk up to our table with our bill. And if we have trusted in Christ, Jesus will be right there to say it's not bad news. It's great news. You're paid in full. John chapter 8 is one of my favorite places in the Bible let's look at something Jesus said about himself and our sins. And when Jesus said this, he wasn't making a threat. He wasn't issuing a warning. He was just making a statement of fact. John eight twenty four. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, meaning unless you believe that I am the only one who can save you, you will die in your sins. Jesus is the only one that can save us. Without Christ, we die in our sins. Do you know that your sins are forgiven today? Do you believe that Jesus is the only one who can save you? If someone's here and they're not sure, please speak to one of our pastors at the end of this message, this service. We don't, you know, we're not going to ask you to give us money or join the church or do anything embarrassing, but we'd love to answer your questions and pray with you so that you can know for certain In 2012, your sins have been forgiven forever. I know a decision like this is easy to put off. You know, well, I've heard this before. Let me think about it. Two of the people I lost this year didn't have time to think about it. Their death was sudden and unexpected. We don't know that we have tomorrow. You all know what Euripides said? Of course you do. Euripides, the wrote Greek tragedies. He said, no one can confidently say that we will still be living tomorrow. So for your sake, if you're here and you're not sure, don't put it off. Make today the day that you accept God's free gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus and forgiveness forever. Okay, so God promises to remember our sins no more. The price he paid was with his own life. And third, we'll close by looking at the purpose of God's forgetfulness. Why does God forgive us? If you've trusted in Christ as your Savior, then you have a home in heaven waiting for you. You have the best retirement plan you can imagine. But what about the here and now? What about everyday life? What about just the mundane things of living? Where does God's forgiveness come into play there? Please turn to Philippians. We'll finish with Philippians 3, 13 to 14. Philippians, I'm sure you know, is written by Paul, someone who wrote Romans that we've been studying with Pastor John. And before he met Christ on the road to Damascus, of course, Paul was known as Saul. And he ruthlessly persecuted believers in Christ. He chased them all over the country like a bounty hunter. He had them thrown into prison. Many who were executed. Paul described himself as the chief of sinners before he met Christ. So Paul had a dark past. Paul had a lot to feel guilty about, but look what he wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Philippians three thirteen to 14. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. These are some of the most encouraging words you'll ever read anywhere. Forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on. Paul would not let his past distract him from serving the Lord now. Paul knew that his sins were forgiven and forgotten so he could move on freely. He could press on. There was no turning back. I want to ask you a question I've been asking myself all week studying this. How often do you let things in the past affect you in the present? How often do you let your yesterdays spoil your todays? God wants our eyes on Jesus, not on a rearview mirror. Every time I look back, I stop going forward where God wants to take me. The Bible does not say that we should have a careless attitude about our sins and pretend like they didn't happen. No, no, no. We, We must take our sins seriously because Christ paid for it dearly. But what it's saying is we don't need to carry our sins with us as baggage. We can leave it behind, we can forget them, leave them behind and press on. Now, Satan loves it when we live in the past. If he can get us to live in the past, he wins. If he can get us to sit there and just focus on our weaknesses, focus on our failures. And by past, it could be years ago, it could be days ago, it could be minutes ago. If he can get us to focus on that, then we become discouraged and defeated, no joy, totally ineffective for Christ. Satan also wins if we live in the future. This is when we think, you know, I can't serve Christ now because I'm just not good enough. And I look around in a room like this and I think, oh, I'm not as spiritual as he is or as spiritual as she is. Maybe, maybe someday in the future when I know the Bible better and I have had a few more church services under my belt, then I'll be able to serve Christ. But that day never comes, does it? Because we're never progressing. We're just standing still because we're not looking at Christ. We're looking at ourselves. Paul said, brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. This is key. Paul knew he hadn't arrived. Paul knew he wasn't perfect. Paul knew he had a long way to go. And if Paul had a long way to go, how far do I have? And you know what? That's the trap right there. We can't think that way. We can't make comparisons because it's not about me. It's about Christ. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We need to press on in the present because the present is where eternity touches us now. Each one of us must keep our eye on the prize. What's the prize? Paul said it's the upward call of God. The prize is the call itself, the call to get to do kingdom work hand in hand with Jesus right now, every day. And each one of us who is trusted in Christ has that call in our life. I pray that as a church, we will be people that press on and never turn back. So to wrap this up, God promises to remember our sins no more. The price he paid was the death of his son, and his purpose is to free us from the guilt and penalty of sin. So we are free to serve him and love him now and forever. On New Year's Eve, when that ball drops in Times Square, nothing's going to change but the date on the calendar. But on the cross, where Christ died, everything changed forever. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for your promise to forgive us and remember our sins no more. Thank you for loving us so much that you sent your son to die for our sins, to buy our freedom with his life. Please, dear God, show us any area of our lives where we have unconfessed sin. Show us any area where our lives, maybe we're just holding onto our past and allowing it to distract us. Father, let us just leave it, leave it Put it down so it doesn't defeat us. Show us too, Lord, if we are just standing still, waiting for some future day when we'll be good enough in our own eyes to serve you. Help us embrace your grace right now to serve you with joy and gratitude and with everything we've got from this day forward. Let us be people who never turn back, but we press on. And Father, if there are people here that aren't sure their sins are forgiven, if there are people who have never put their faith in Christ, please open their eyes right now. Show them they don't need to make a New Year's resolution. They just need to make a decision, the decision to ask Jesus to save them. Please, Father, give them courage to talk to one of our pastors and make that decision today. Father, thank you for 2012. Thank you for your faithfulness, your protection, your guidance, your love. Please now, Father, bless us and strengthen us so we may honor you in all that we do in 2013. We love you, Lord. Amen.